Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to 3 Plus 4. The perfect podcast does exist. All right. Um, I got to tell you, I'm actually a little tired, but uh, I'm, I want to do this podcast. We, we've tried a couple times, and uh, we're going to make it happen tonight. So uh, that's, uh, that's what we're doing. Um, last time I... I uh, Fumbled around a little bit, like I'm doing right now. Um, didn't want to come straight at you about certain things, but I think we kind of have an understanding um, about what the basis is and what we're looking for, right? So we want to talk a little bit about uh, postulates and axioms and then kind of figure out what our postulates and axioms are. And I was realizing earlier that my postulates and axioms have shifted uh, so I've, I've gotten to where I have basically a new set of beliefs that are, is kind of the, uh, the basis. Um, so anyway, uh, did you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about that? Like basically the, uh, the basics of geometry that, um, well, I mean, I know it as geometry, um, or I learned it in geometry, but it's, it's basically a mathematical concept that you have to start with something like in any belief system, you have to start with some obvious truth, and then build upon that. Well, David, I, I've got to say, I'm a little confused about what we have said in past podcasts that's actually going to be in them, and what we've said in la- past podcasts that we've decided we're going to do over. <laughs> <laughs> right. That is so. Well, that's the thing. You, it, in can the you previous, help me a little bit? Yeah, yeah. In the podcast that we are basically doing over right now, we had. 27 minutes and we had some technical difficulties. Uh, you discussed that concept of postulates, axioms, and you know how to start a logical system. And then uh, you gave your little um, uh, de- uh, description of being uh, dropped in Russia with a Russian dictionary. And even though you have all of the Russian, you know, in the Russian dictionary, you had it doesn't do you any good because you don't know any of it. So you don't have a place to start. Okay. So you've just stolen that thunder from me. (laughs) Well, I mean, just go. Okay. (laughs) All right. Um, All right. Let's let's start out a little bit. Um, David, it's not just geometry. I know. And it's not even just mathematics. But in any system of reasoning, philosophy, of any type, everybody that approaches that that particular field of study has to approach it with some axioms or postulates. Now, uh, again, uh, you've thrown out those two words, and I'm not sure, but I think they were defined in the podcast that we've discarded. So if I could go back and just say a postulate or an axiom is something that we accept is true without any proof. Yep. And then the illustration I gave was that you need something to start with. And the illustration I gave was that if I were to place you, and you, I'm talking about you, David, my son, down in Red Square in Moscow, I happen to know that you don't know any Russian. But if I gave you an unabridged Russian dictionary, in other words, every Russian word 
was in the dictionary, and every Russian word in the dictionary contained right after it in the dictionary a written description of the definition of the word, what the word meant. Unfortunately, all of those uh, descriptions or definitions of words would be in the Russian language. The book would do you no good because you don't have a starting place. Right. So when you are going to engage in any form of reasoning, uh, any uh, philosophy, if you will, and in a sense, mathematics and geometry in particular are philosophies. Um, you have to start with some things that you assume is true. Now, I would say that even though uh, you assume that they're true, uh, if, as you reason, if you get nonsense or if you get contradictory results, then the postulates cannot be uh, true altogether. Maybe some of them are and some of them aren't. Um, it, when you were in the ninth grade, David, I showed you a proof from geometry that all triangles were isosceles. Now, obviously that's not true, but if you go through this proof, and we're not going to do that here, if you go through that proof, it's very, very convincing as a proof once you know some of geometry. The problem with the proof is that one of the assumptions, and on this one, really, it's kind of slick the way they slip in the assumption. It's not even literally stated. You just, it's just kind of there. It's assumed. And as soon as, as soon as you swallow that, then uh, you're able to prove any nonsense you want. <laughs> yeah. Now, <clears throat> there's another part about axioms and postulates that I would like to bring up here. And that's the idea that um, if you have something that you accept as true without proof, then, but it, you're able to prove that thing from other things that you've assumed, then that thing doesn't need to be a postulate. And one way to realize that a, something does need to be a postulate or it does need to be accepted without truth is that if you change it, it changes the structure of your uh, philosophy or your, your manner of reasoning. And I think the clearest example of that is in geometry. Now, Euclid, uh, when he penned the elements, that's a, uh, actually a series of 13 volumes of uh, proofs about geometry, he made five postulates. And... Nobody really had any trouble with the first four, but a lot of people have questioned whether the fifth one needed to be a postulate. Now, the fifth one, when the way Euclid stated the fifth one was he said, if two lines being fall upon, fallen upon a third line form two angles on the same side of the third line that are less than two right angles, then the two lines, if infinitely produced, will intersect. And I've got to tell you, uh, if you just listen to all of that, you say, well, how can we assume that that's true without proof? It's very complicated. 
In fact, when we do have postulates, we want to have them as simple as possible so that we don't worry about there being hidden things back in the back part of them that uh, uh, would come and bite us in the derriere, if you will, sometime later. So right. years later, yes? Oh, well, uh, just even even hearing that, um, it sounds like that is a kind of, it, it sounds like that's a thing that you can prove from your other postulates, right? So, well, a lot of mathematicians thought that was true. Let, let me go on here. John Playfair, a number of years later, came up with an alternate statement for Euclid's fifth postulate that basically said, through a point, not on a line, there is exactly one parallel to the given line through the given point. And that's really pretty simple. And now here's the thing. Mathematicians tried to prove that one, but were unable to. And uh, a number of years later, several mathematicians, Lobachevsky and Gauss in particular, said, well, what if we change that fifth postulate? And when they did change it, uh, the structure of geometry changes significantly. Um, Lobachevsky said, how about if we change it to through a point, not on a line, there's an infinite number of lines parallel to the given point, uh, to the given line through the given point. And Gauss said, uh, why don't we change it so that we say through a point on, not on a line, there's no lines that are parallel to the given line through the given point. Now, what happened was um, Euclid's geometry, where there's one parallel line, has flat planes and straight lines. Lobachevsky's geometry, where there are infinitely many parallel lines uh, through a given point uh, to a given line, has uh, planes that actually curve towards you. If you're standing there looking at a plane, the edges of it curve back around you. And we get what is called hyperbolean geometry. And Gauss's geometry uh, says there are no parallel lines. Gauss's geometry is a spherical geometry. In other words, the planes uh, uh, bend away from you. And in essence, lines become great circles on a sphere. And there are no two great circles on a sphere that don't intersect. So one of the ways you can see that a postulate is actually necessary is that it does something significant to the structure of your reasoning. Okay. <clears throat> that's, that's interesting. Um, so one of the things that I think that I believe to be the case is that um, when I build a toolkit or when I come up with an idea that helps me determine what truth is in one area, I think that I can use that same tool in other areas. So basically the idea that, um, you know, that structures of reasoning have these initial beliefs that you have to take, uh, let's say on faith, um, and then basically test them out. Uh, test them through seeing how they interact with the system of reasoning itself. Um, I think that that is the kind of thing that you can take and apply to all systems of reasoning. Um, now, it, it particularly works when you're searching for the truth. And when you find a th something that is reliable in one area, you can apply it in another area. It doesn't necessarily work with like uh, techniques or tricks uh, that are 
um, only work because of the system that they're inside of, right? So like, in other words, we're not necessarily going to bring out our compass and our straight straight edge here, but we are going to bring out the same kind of logical reasoning that we utilize in, uh, in geometry. Does that make sense? Yes. So one of the things that we really, we haven't figured out yet, we haven't said, and we haven't had, um, uh, it, it, it's actually going to be kind of difficult is to figure out what our postulates are for Christianity. What is it? What's our starting point? Well, David, before I respond to that question, uh, something else you said makes me want to make a, another statement in that particular area that I think might be helpful. Okay. Um, the, the truth is, in any form of philosophy, if someone is instructed in that philosophy, even if the postulates aren't actually stated, as someone accepts the instruction of the philosophy, they come to accept <clears throat> the postulates or the assumptions that foster that philosophy. Interesting. So, in other words, if, if we think of Christianity as a philosophy, in other words, you're trying to boil it down to that. You're saying, we want to take a look at what the postulates are. And I, I think that's a good thing. Uh, but the truth is, if someone is instructed in Christianity and accepts the instruction of Christianity, they will come to accept the postulates of Christianity as well. And I, I like that. There's actually, um, <laughs> that, that brings to mind a few verses, right? Um, the idea that uh, no one can come to God unless the Holy Spirit draws him. So in other words, the instruction uh, is given, and as you are instructed of God, or as the Holy Spirit draws you and, and shows you things through your experience in life, um, it brings you to the Creator. It brings you to uh, knowledge of the Jesus Christ. Now, I actually kind of think I have one postulate in mind, and that postulate is that every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is truth, is true. Now, I, I think that's, um, that's axiomatic. In other words, if you don't believe that what God tells you is true, then you really can't go further in building, um, building any kind of reasoned system based on his word. Okay. David, could I interrupt here again with uh, something out of logic? Sure. Um, if we go back to Euclid's fifth postulate again, mm -hmm. see— Euclid's postulate, as stated, fifth postulate as stated, was very complicated. And John Playfair's statement for that fifth postulate was very, very simple. Oh, you want to simplify now, my postulate? No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Okay. What I want to say is, what happens is, if you take Euclid's statement of the fifth postulate and accept that, 
then it's possible to prove Playfair's statement. On the other hand, if you accept Playfair's statement as the fifth postulate, then it's possible to prove Euclid's fifth postulate. Mm. And in fact, there are a number of other statements that are equivalent to Euclid's fifth postulate that don't even really seem to be the same. For example, if we instead postulated that the sum of the degrees of the angles in a triangle is 180, that's actually equivalent to Playfair's statement and Euclid's statement. So you could accept that one as the postulate and prove the other two. So sometimes it's not really possible to say this is the postulate. But you could say this is a postulate of Christianity. And then that leads us to other statements. Or if you were to take some other statement and say, well, let's call this the postulate, then it would lead back to that one. Now, what you're saying is that every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is truth. I like that one. Okay. Well, then I think it's, it's actually interesting. Are, I think there are a couple of other, other ways that it could be stated or a couple of other things that could be said that might not even really sound like they're the same. Let me just, and I, you know, you've just brought this up, so I'm thinking, but I am thinking that I think one of the statements of the postulates of Christianity, Christianity is, or might be, there is a God, and he is Lord, and he is interested in having a relationship with us. Um, interesting. Uh, I think that, that much of that, in my view, flows from the fact that he created us in his image. Now, um, it, I guess, I guess I'd, I'm not trying to argue with you on that because I, I How about it being those, a postulate? Yeah, but all those be I agree with all those statements. I guess that's the question really. Um, which one is gonna which one will we take as the postulate? And I think at this point, uh, probably what we're doing is we're just proposing things and we'll figure well, it out. Well now hang on, hang on just a second here, David. Okay. Um, you probably aren't gonna get away with having just one postulate. Oh no, no. I, I'm not expecting to have just one postulate. But okay. at the same time and, and what I what I basically said was that there are a lot of different ways to state a postulate, and when you've stated it in a certain way, other things that could also be stated as the postulate become then provable. Right, right. And so I would say what you're saying to me is, oh, okay, Dad, but I think maybe that's not the way I want to make the statement. <laughs> that's not the best. Right, and I see that. Um, as, well, here's kind of what I think, though. I, I, I think that... If you accept uh, the concept that every word um, that proceeds from the mouth of God is true, and then what it what we have to do is we have to establish what God has said. Um, all of those things become provable. Even the idea that I mean, uh, you know, in Scripture God says that He created us in His image, and then there are many times in Scripture where He talks about 
his love for us and kind of um, basically he, he, he says at one point, I think like, how could I not have compassion on my own image or how could I not have compassion on uh, something like that? Anyway, um, it, I guess my point is that even, even all of that um, put together, if we then establish scripture that um, all of those things come in. Does that make sense? So in other words, they, oh, yes. they end up being uh, less axiomatic um, and more the result of uh, believing in what God has said. And I think that, that um, it's believing in what God has said is, to me, the axiom, and, and I think God calls it out as the axiom, because he says, um, you know, he says that what we need to do is have faith. And uh, Abraham is the father of the faithful, right? So Abraham, um, God spoke to Abraham at one point. Now we're, we're going into Scripture, and we're going to talk about it, but um, we haven't really established it yet. But uh, we're, so we go into, um, uh, God said to Abraham, about this time next year you'll have a son. And then Abraham's response to that was that Abraham believed God. And it says that his faith was counted for righteousness. And that faith in that particular chapter is a restatement of believing what God has said. Now, do you happen to know which chapter of Genesis that was? Um, 12? I think it was 15. Okay. Um, uh, you've got, uh, I've got myself curious now. Uh, hang on a second here. Go ahead and continue. Okay, well that um, uh, I'm I'm looking it up too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, fifteen six. You're right. That's what I'm getting. Genesis fifteen six. Okay, so Shall we just read ahead. that first quickly. Yeah, by all means. Okay. And which uh, which um, are you going to read it in the original <laughs> Hebrew or in the original? King James. <laughs> go, go for it. Uh, yeah, well, if it was good enough for Peter and Paul, right? Um, it's good enough for us. These are and these are the bad dad slash pastor jokes I've lived with my whole life. Bad dad jokes. Okay, in uh, verse six of Genesis fifteen, it says, "And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness." Mm-hmm. Which I guess is exactly what we were saying. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Now I think it's also interesting. The same kind of concept uh, comes into play when John talks about Jesus, and he talks about Jesus as the Word, and he says that in the beginning the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word was Jesus Christ, and he came down, um, you know, to Earth uh, to to live as a man. Um, so that is where we get, I, I guess. Um, the Christian, uh, the Christian ethos here. So if every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is truth and Jesus is the word of God, then he is also the truth. Now he himself said that I'm the way, the truth and the life. Um, and I think that, you know, to me, that is the, the ultimate axiom, um, of Christianity. Those are the things that I would, I would even just. I don't know. We kind of uh, stop right there. Um, I, 
do you do you really think that we need additional axioms? Well, I don't know, David. Um, uh, you see, we have um, Jesus being born of a virgin, living and teaching, and then dying on the cross, shedding his blood, and there was a reason for that death. The reason for that death was so that we could have our sins covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We could be forgiven and granted fellowship with God, adopted as children. Now, um, I... I don't know, but it seems to me that, uh, okay, first of all, you do know that the name Jesus is the Aramaic of the um, uh, the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God is salvation. Mm-hmm. And when the angel uh, actually appeared to Joseph, because Joseph, uh, the earthly father of Jesus, had found out, and he was betrothed to this young maiden named Mary, and he had found out that she was with child, and he knew he wasn't the father. And uh, the Bible tells us that he was considering um, breaking the marriage. Um, He was going to put her away privately so that she wouldn't be um, harmed or anything like that. But uh, it didn't. He thought, you know, I'm not going to marry her. But an angel of the Lord came to Joseph and said, Joseph, fear not to take Mary, your your espoused wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a firstborn son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Now remember, Jesus means God is salvation. And then the angel said, for he shall save his people from their sins. In other words, the angel was saying, you'll call in this name. And in the Old Testament, a lot of times the name and the meaning of the name meant an awful lot. And the angel prophesied to Joseph that Jesus was there to save people from sin. Now, uh, and then you find a lot of times in the Bible, it'll say to those that believe on the name of the Son of God. In other words, believe back to the fact that Jesus accomplished what it was prophesied by the angel that he would do. I'm not sure that that shouldn't be a postulate also. Well, I'm pretty sure that um, that you just made the case through Scripture. So I think at this point, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of gotten to the point where uh, I think but, we need to be with but the original pronouncement there, David, uh-huh. was made by an angel, not by God himself. And so maybe that's a I don't know. Maybe it's not a postulate, but I, I think it's a very, very important truth. Um, well, so, OK, so. OK, I, I mean, I, I agree. It's uh, that's important. It's um Part of the important set of beliefs of Christianity, I think those are uh, uh, theorems, though. Uh, but let me ask you this. Um, <laughs> uh, we should also say to our listeners, theorems is another name for proofs as opposed to postulates. Proofs are things that we prove from the things that we already know are true. 
postulates are things that we accept as true, although we have no proof for them. Okay, go ahead. Okay. So, um, and I, I, I'm trying not to uh, get too crazy here. Um, All right. <laughs> the, I've been crazy enough for both of us. I, I, can, I can go crazy. Um, and, but you see, the thing is, at least when I say the things that I'm going to say that I'm, I call crazy, I at least know that they sound a little crazy. So um, whenever we get to that point, uh, I'm just going to ask for that, that credit. Um, the, yeah, I want to I wanna keep the postulates as limited as possible. Um, when an angel speaks, angels are, uh, according to Scripture, the servants of God. And messengers of God. Messengers of God. They deliver the message that God gave them to deliver. And so you would have well, to... Not, not always. Lucifer is an angel. And his message was not one that God gave him to deliver. He, yeah, but he's a fallen <laughs> angel. So we... I mean, we get that. That's the whole problem with Lucifer. So uh, Lucifer uh, was cast out. Uh, it says that he was cast out, uh, cast down like lightning from heaven uh, because of his various, uh, his rebellion, basically. Uh, he decided that, uh, that men should serve him, that the man should bow down and worship him, and that uh, he would kick God out of heaven. He's going to take the throne away from the almighty God, which I don't you know, know how you... Just, just on a side note, uh-huh. he's really supposed to be smart, right? Yeah, how I don't know how he, you... How could he believe that he could maintain the universe when all of his power is derived from God? <laughs> well... I, I, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, the uh, we have a, a different view of that um you know the god's maintenance of the universe but just i I think we'd have the same view of the concept that everything you know lucifer was part of the creation how does the creation uh get to the point where it thinks that it can overtake the creator i don't i don't get that and also he was supposed to be um the fulfillment of wisdom and beauty but he apparently perverted his wisdom and beauty when he rebelled um those are those are in some uh, non-canonical texts but it's a pretty interesting statement um in something called the uh, uh there's a book of adam and eve and i can't remember the exact name of it but it basically it's the the story of adam and eve um it is it, it is that exact thing say uh lucifer uh perverts his wisdom and beauty and then he comes to adam and basically is tormenting adam and God binds him in the air and holds him in front of Adam and shows him Lucifer's true form at that point. And he says, look at him. He's hideous. I will protect you from him. Don't, you don't worry about it, basically. So um, he can only do what I allow him to do, is, is what he said. Uh, something along those lines. Anyway, it's, uh, it's very similar to a lot of current Christian beliefs. In, and this is one of the things, too, I find in some of these Old Testament or old uh, texts that there are little nuggets of things that Christians, modern Christians kind of believe, but they don't really have a supporting text for, which I think is kind of an interesting thing. Um, it, it comes to us through tradition, which does work to some extent, although I don't know that it's uh, perfect. Anyway, um, 
So when we, I think the next, the very next thing that we have to do is we have to start um, identifying what we can believe that God said. And I think that is an important piece of the, uh, of the construction of Christianity. And I think that's one of the things that we're going to have a problem with, or at least we're going to differ with a little bit. And I think that we need to be as um, conservative in the construction of what it is that we believe God has said as we can possibly be. So in other words, if we believe that the things that God has said is, are true, and we know that God is himself uh, like sui generis, we know that God is, um, is coherent and he's the source of all truth in the universe— um, here's a postulate or uh, a, uh, one of the theorems that I have is that God created the world by speaking it to, into existence, right? So the world itself can be considered a source of truth. If we do like, for instance, a scientific experiment and we find, um, that, you know, like if you drop a marble, that it will fall towards the center of the earth, um, Whatever, whatever kind of scientific experiment you want to do, whatever kind of scientific investigation of the world or empirical investigation of the world, I should call it, that that will work and that that will lead you to truth because initially all of these things exist because they were spoken into existence by the source of truth. All right. <clears throat> now, uh, another thing, it's kind of um, a corollary to that is that God, um, it says in one of the uh, texts that I like, uh, that God took wisdom as his concubine when he created the earth, or created the world. And uh, in doing so, uh, put wisdom into the world. So now, not only if you study the creation, are you able to get truth, but you're able to study wisdom. And one of the things that I, I think is, in, although this is much less objective, um, one of the things I think is interesting is that as you study, for instance, biology, and I've listened to a lot of biologists who talk about the way that things are, um, the, the way that certain animals uh, work and certain strategies. So there's um, strategies for both male and female. There's strategies for plants. There's strategies, strategies for animals. And they all have these kind of different ways of acting in the world. <clears throat> and to... Um, investigate and study the things that have survived, the, the strategies basically that have won or, or um, uh, how should I put this, the, that continue because life, you know, is, it's not the original organisms that were created. It is, but it is the original species, right? So like if you have a plant, um, it's, those are the things that God put into that plant. And the, uh, strategies that are there with uh, pollination and all the various uh, mechanisms that are, uh, you know, taking, using chlorophyll to uh, uh, take energy from the sun and so forth. Those are mechanisms or uh, part of the wisdom of God. And it's interesting because they can be um, uh, almost parabolized. They can be used as analogies for things. And if you understand the world, the physical world, then you'll be able to understand the analogies based on it. And Jesus did that a lot with parables. Uh, now, he used shepherds and uh, farmers and, and fathers and sons and things like that because they're extremely relatable. But 
there is a lot of wisdom hidden all throughout the world through biology and uh, various other uh, scientific endeavors. You can find those things, which is, I, I think that's uh, an interesting corollary to the, uh, the truth corollary is the wisdom corollary. Well, David, in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it says, And knowledge of the holy is understanding. Okay. <clears throat> what, is, what is knowledge of the holy in that situation? I, I would say that I understand this verse to say that uh, when it says fear there, I think it means awe and respect. respect. Right. And so we turn to God in awe and respect, and that is wisdom. We acknowledge that God is in his proper perspective to earth, and that's that's kind of, I guess the word is Lord or boss. You know, God is in control. He's all-powerful. He can do everything, <clears throat> and what he does is right and righteous and true. And then as we... Um, uh, and as we um, gain knowledge of God, mm. that's what gives us understanding. Well, that's interesting. Um, and it's kind of what I'm saying about looking at the way that the world is created. Um, he created it. And so by studying his creation, you are indirectly able to study the creator. Now, I know that there are also texts that allow us to kind of almost directly study the Creator. So he can specifically speak, but uh, it seems that the world around us also holds um, secrets that he has not placed in this, the text. And I'm not... Well, David, I, I think here I'm diverging from you a little bit. Okay. Uh, because... I think what I'm saying is that turning to God, worshiping God, being awed by God, seeking God's face is wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Um, and in other words, saying, well, I'm going to instead turn and I'm going to study God's creation. <clears throat> um I think the truth is you can understand some of how God works from that, but I think the true wisdom, knowledge, and understanding come from making God your goal, your, the, your desire, your uh, focus, if you will. Um, Jesus said, Thou shalt uh, love thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And God, uh, you know, this is kind of off in left field, but I believe God created us to be his pleasure. And he is pleased with us when we turn to him with desire to know him, 
to fellowship, to love him. Hmm. Mm. Well, uh, what, what verses would you use to uh, support that particular statement? Well, I think I quoted them already. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy heart, oh, with all thy mind. No, no, no. Oh, what I'm saying is, um, so you gave, you slipped the Westminster Confession of Faith in there. And the idea uh, that, that God... Jesus, Jesus said it. What? Okay. Or it's in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. He says what? It's in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. Right, right. Deuteronomy. I'm, I'm asking, uh, quote the verse. <laughs> or... Or tell me what the what the uh, um, reference is because I, that's one I disagree with. I don't I don't particularly agree with that. I think that is uh, maybe a emergent duty. In other words, God before the creation, God was good and content and fully capable of enjoying His goodness all by Himself. There was no need or desire that God could not fulfill on His own. So the question I would ask is, why then did God create man? And any answer to that that gives um, a, a that, that somehow says that we pleased him or that we, uh, we could do anything for him that he couldn't do for himself, um, I think misses the mark on why he created us. I think the reason that he created us, um, and this comes from a text where uh, it's supposedly quoting Jesus as he was ascending into heaven on the Mount of Olives after he'd been crucified and resurrected and the, uh, the, the disciples were asking him questions and he said, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you everything now. I'm not going to hold anything back. And so the answer to the question, why did God create man, is God decided in his goodness that he should not enjoy his goodness alone. Now, when I read that, I got goosebumps. That is um, such an interesting and wonderful statement. It is, first of all, completely altruistic, right? And that is, <clears throat> I think, a, a thing that was missing from all the other explanations. There are a couple different uh, confessions of faith or, or reasons that people believe that God created uh, man. And the one that supposedly Jesus stated is the most perfect, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Uh, and, and granted, that those are that's coming from my criteria, right? So in other words, altruistic, um, and God decided in his goodness that he should not enjoy his goodness alone. Um, well, that's the thing that he wants to share with us, right? Is himself, his goodness. Um, and it then means that we were created to enjoy the goodness of God. Now that's not necessarily what happens on this earth. That's more of an eternal focus, right? So it really tells us that the eternal focus is, uh, for us to spend eternity with him. That, that was that is like from the beginning, that was the design. And the other thing that um, <clears throat> it, it kind of explains to us is that our design is to enjoy him. So in other words, all of our ability to 
feel pain and enjoyment and pleasure and, and all that together is part of how we were designed um, because our purpose is to enjoy God. Now, we also know from Scripture that we are uh, our bodies are supposed to be temples, right? And they're supposed to be where uh, God lives. Um, I have had one experience with the Holy Spirit that I I would point to, and I would say um, it was absolutely awe-inspiring and amazing. And I, I so let me let me go to this. Uh, I hear a lot of people talk about the Holy Spirit as if they have kind of pedestrian everyday experiences with the Holy Spirit. And my experience with the Holy Spirit was that it was too marvelous for words. And that is actually a, a phrase that is used in Scripture a couple of times, too marvelous for words. And I think that um, understanding that that is, like that's the, that we are designed to be the temple to um, the person of the Holy Spirit, and that that is too that He is too marvelous for words. I don't I don't know what to say about it. That's that's the that's the ultimate goal, uh, you know. And that was the goal from the beginning, not like some emergent thing. Now, for well, well, David, David once we if, exist, if I could go ahead. If I could just interrupt here for a second, I don't disagree with anything that you're saying, but you were the one that brought up wisdom uh, by studying God's creation. Yeah. And I think I disagree with you there. I think wisdom comes <clears throat> from relationship with God, being awed by him. See, in other words, in, in Proverbs, it says the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not studying the world. I would say to you <clears throat> that, we have examples of men who've been brilliant and have studied the world through science and so forth like this and come to completely horrible conclusions about oh, God. That's true. And I, I, I think that what we are saying can be synthesized in that if you study the world from um, a naturalist perspective, you're not going to get the same wisdom of God out of it. If you, on the other hand, study that from more of a <clears throat> a creationist perspective, you could get uh, more wisdom out of the world. Um, it, so, well, okay, I, I I don't disagree with you there. I have a number of things uh, where uh, my study of well, actually, I've been more involved in studying mathematics than science. And my study of mathematics, as I have been reading through the scripture a couple of times, has just kind of kicked me in the head and said, oh, wow, this is what that's talking about. But the, what I'm saying is I think the Bible points to focusing on God to increase wisdom, not focusing on the creation to increase wisdom. Okay. Um, and... So what I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not even disagreeing necessarily with that. Uh, it studying the creation is more of a technique, um, and it it is 
that if you know that God created the world, that you can go find his wisdom there. If, if you're doing it wrong, if you don't, res- <laughs> if you don't respect God and you don't believe in him, then you could go um, and study his wisdom and miss it altogether. Or it is, I, I think it is possible also to go there and study it and for God to use that to draw you to him, to be the things that he is showing you <clears throat> to, over time, uh, build in you the belief system uh, that points to him. See, now the other side of that coin, David, that uh, we haven't really mentioned yet, or I haven't really mentioned yet, is that um, uh, it, awe of the Lord. I don't want to use the word fear here. I want to use awe. Awe of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, if we know that God is outside creation, he is the creator, he is omnipotent, he is omniscient, he is omnipresent. In other words, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's everywhere. Mm -hmm. If we start from that focus, and God is awesome, and he is creator, and he is in control, that's the beginning of wisdom. Well, I think I think that's interesting. Um, have you? It, it, this is um, not necessarily a rebuttal, but um, are you familiar with the Flatlanders movie or the book no. and then the movie? So oh, wait, wait. <clears throat> now wait. Edwin Abbott's book Flatland. Yeah, I am familiar with Edwin Abbott's book Flatland. So. Uh, there is, I'm actually not as familiar as you are with it. I've not read the book. But I did um, see the trailer on YouTube. And there is, uh, I believe, uh, who was it? Isaac, it's not Isaac Asimov. It's um, uh, one of the, one of the it, some author uh, goes through and kind of depicts the whole situation where he talks about uh, a two-dimensional Carl, being that... Carl Sagan? Carl Sagan, that's it talks about a two-dimensional being that uh, has a contact with a three-dimensional being. And this two-dimensional being doesn't even have the ability to see three dimensions. So the the three-dimensional being may be right there on top of that two-dimensional being, but the two-dimensional being cannot see up. They can only see, like, um, basically left and right. And not having the, the frame of reference to even see... Uh, the three-dimensional being. The, the three-dimensional being is still there and able to discuss or talk to the two-dimensional being. And it's interesting that he described that if a, two, if a three-dimensional being spoke to a two-dimensional being, it would feel to the two-dimensional being like the three-dimensional being was speaking to the core of his being. And I find that to be the most ironic thing I've ever seen on on YouTube because the I I have had God speak to me and that is what it was like. It was like he spoke to the core of my being and I was like unable to see him. I looked around and could not see him because obviously he's not in the world that we are in, but he is still able to speak to us and he's uh you know is 
Uh, there are a lot of things that say that he draws near to us in certain situations. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, that's, that is where um, I just think that's extremely interesting. Uh, that's, uh, uh, and you mentioned that, uh, or you said something that made me think of that. Uh, so it's kind of this idea. Um, science actually has formed the idea that there are <clears throat> possibly as many as 26 dimensions and interestingly <laughs> enough, multiple dimensions of time. So it's not like we're we're not even just saying like, hey, there's a fourth dimension. Like there's there's a bunch of dimensions. But whatever the ultimate number of dimensions are. Oh, and this is actually another interesting thing because at, at if you get to a high enough number of dimensions, a thing that Jesus said, uh, it's in a a book called the Wisdom of uh, the the Gospel of Sophia, or the Gospel of Wisdom. Um, he said that God exists in a place where he can view himself from every angle. And I thought, you know, I'm just like, okay, I'll take your word for it. But it was later that I learned that in uh, some of these, uh, the, the physics or math of the higher dimensions, that that actually becomes a possibility. That, that actually becomes a thing that occurs. Um, so I don't know what that, what number of dimensions God must exist in. But then that also brings us to an interesting point that you have in the past brought up, and that is that there are different levels of infinity. And, you know, for instance, a, <clears throat> a sphere basically looks infinite to a circle because it is obviously like it's with, if you are, a, if you are <clears throat> a circle, um, you have absolutely no thickness, all right? So that's, uh, you know, on a, on a plane, the plane has no thickness. <clears throat> um, a, an object in three dimensions with any thickness at all is relatively, um, how would you put this, infinite. In other words, if you divided the, uh, a circle by the width of a, or if you divide a sphere by the width of the circle, uh, that width of the circle basically approaches zero. So you, own, you end up with kind of an infinite uh, thing. Does that make sense? Am I making sense here? Am I? Am well, I, I, <laughs> you're, I, you, I, I, I think I have a little problem with your mathematical description okay. of, uh, Infinity. of this. <laughs> yeah. So, but my point is that there are, if, if there is infinity, um, and then you have add additional dimensions to the infinity. You will like, for instance, uh, okay, let's look at infinite, uh, countably infinite versus non-countably infinite. On okay, a, if, on a could, number, could level. I could I could I do this, David? Um, yeah, maybe. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, all right. Now uh, you mentioned countable infinity and uncountable infinity. Yes. Um, and so we would start with the concept of the infinite. And um, although we don't have names for all the counting numbers, we kind of have a system where we know how to get from one counting number to the next. We start with one, and then there's two, and then there's three. And you ask yourself, how many are there? And, well, someone would say, well, they never end. So we use the word, there must be an infinite number of them. Now, 
if you had an infinite amount of time and were so inclined, you could start by naming the first one and then the second one and the third one. And if you kept on going through infinity, there is no counting number that you wouldn't eventually come to and go past. But there would always be more, even in an infinite amount of time. And that's what we call countably infinite. Now, if we take <clears throat> the negative counting numbers and zero, we get a set called the integers. Now, they're uncountably infinite also, although there's obviously more numbers, but maybe not. You mean not they're, they're also they're countably infinite? They are also countably infinite. Okay. Maybe there aren't more because there's a way to put the integers into a one-to-one -one and onto correspondence with the counting numbers. So mathematicians say, at least, the way to determine the level of infinity of a set is to see what set it could be put in and onto correspondence with. So the integers, which are the positive counting numbers, zero, and the negative counting numbers, there is a way to put them into a one-to-one -one and onto correspondence, and so they must both then be countably infinite. One of the things that blew my mind when I was in college was when I first was shown a proof that the rational numbers, in other words, the rational numbers are the numbers that are the ratio of two integers. In other words, the, the top number is an integer, the bottom number is an integer. And it's possible to put the rational numbers into a one-to-one -one and onto correspondence with the counting numbers, which means that the rational numbers are also countably infinite. Now, the problem with that is, in my mind at least, is that we also can prove easily that the rational numbers are dense, which means that between any two distinct rational numbers, there is another rational number. So by extension, between any two rational numbers, no matter how close together, there's an infinite number of rational numbers. So uh, in other words, the rational numbers are not any more infinite than the counting numbers. And that is kind of amazing. But then when you get to the real numbers, which are all the numbers that can be matched with a point on the number line, let's just even take the ones between zero and one. It's possible to prove that there is no way or that it is actually impossible to put those numbers into a one-to-one -one and onto correspondence with the counting numbers. And therefore, the, the real numbers between zero and one must have a higher order of infinity than uh, the counting numbers, the integers, the rational numbers. <clears throat> and uh, from there, we're able to talk about uh, hierarchies of infinities. In other words, there are a lot of different levels of infinities. And I've even seen a paper that claims there are infinities that we cannot even reach with symbols of infinities. Um, it, it's kind of amazing. Uh, 
that there are a lot of different levels of infinities. Okay, now okay. that makes me feel a little bit better that it's been stated that way, David. Okay, now go ahead. <laughs> All right, now we're, we're coming close to the end, but this is kind of the, I guess maybe this will be the concept that we leave you with, is that you have now, that's just a number line. That is literally a one-dimensional uh, method of identifying numbers. Now, if you literally put that in two dimensions, how does that affect things? So, like, so let's say that we have now um, uh, you have the the points on the the line that are represented by uh, rational numbers or, or, or whole numbers, like one, one, two, two, and so forth. <clears throat> uh, is it possible? To recognize, to put all of, I, I guess it, those would still be countably infinite, right? Um, but then what happens? I'm not, I'm not sure. Wait, which set did you say now? The, the whole number uh, points on a Cartesian coordinate graph. Um, okay, imagine, of course, on. that it goes out to infinity. Now, so you're putting, you're crossing mm -hmm. one number line with another number line now. Yep. So in other words, uh, horizontal... <laughs> number line, a vertical number line, and right now you're looking at the grid points in the plane. Now, when I say grid points, we're talking about points where both the X and Y coordinate are integers. Yeah, now, assuming that I could draw Those a line that always... are countably infinite. Yeah. Well, and I would, I would say that what I would do to prove that they're countably infinite is I would draw a line from the origin to 0, 1, then to negative... Uh, uh, one negative one, and then back You'd to spiral out. Yeah, I'd spiral spiral it out basically. <clears throat> right. Um, but then, uh, the I guess this is the concept of infinity. We we have on that number line the uh, irrational numbers, which we know are uncountable and dense. It, and then we basically multiply that by the itself basically right so we we've got one basically going horizontal and one going vertical and then i don't know mathematically how that multiplies the uh the infinities but it it seems to me that it's the number line itself was uncountably infinite and when you multiply uncountably infinite by uncountably infinite that you get a different magnitude of infinity is that well, no, that's not true. R cross R has the same level of infinity as R. In other words, if you take a horizontal number line, a real number line, and you cross it with a vertical real number line, your level inf of infinity stays the same. Okay. <clears throat> and how do you get to the next level of infinity? Well, um... You actually have to go um, to a uh, an exponential level, um, <clears throat> David. I think this is getting beyond. Okay, no, he, he, uh, that's fine. Um, let me let me just ask you this. So we have that one number line, right? And then we've put it on a coordinate plane, and then let's say that we have another number line that's 
like just one up above that. Now, don't we have an infinite number of number lines at irrational <laughs> levels in between those two? So we have an infinite number of uncountably, in, an uncountably infinite number of uncountably infinite lines just in that sliver of the, uh, the, the additional dimension. Okay, David, uh, it, it doesn't work quite like that. Uh, but for example, um, can you see that there are just as many counting numbers <clears throat> as there are even counting numbers? Um, <clears throat> yes. Okay. Um, just to reiterate here, you could match one with two, two with four, <clears throat> three with six, four with eight, and so on. Now, Every number, one, two, three, four, would have a number in the even counting numbers to be matched with. And every even counting number would have a number that it's matched with. Even though your mind says, well, obviously, there's twice as many counting numbers as there are even counting numbers. So the, uh, the actual way to determine whether or not um, the the level of infinity is greater than the one before is when you can show that there isn't a one-to-one and onto correspondence between the two sets. Uh, and I think the easiest one for our listeners to understand would be to just go back and let's take the num the real numbers between zero and one. Now, one way to describe the real numbers between zero and one is as decimals. Uh, for the real numbers between zero and one, they would start with a decimal point, and then there would be a digit somewhere between zero and nine. And then after that, there'd be another digit somewhere between zero and nine, and so on and so forth. And the real numbers between uh, zero and one would have uh, both de uh, decimals that after a while, all you had was zeros. We ordinarily call those terminating decimals. And it would have all of the, the uh, decimals that have digits between zero and nine going out to infinity. Now, some of those are rational, some of them are irrational. But what we could say is, let's assume, and this, by the way, is a proof by way of contradiction. Let's assume that there is a one-to-one -one and or onto correspondence between the counting numbers and the uh, real numbers as in decimal form between zero and one. Now, um, if that were true, then uh, there would be some uh, decimal number. I'm not saying what it is. That would be matched with one. And then there'd be another decimal number a different one that is matched with two, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what we do is we say, all right, let's build a number. Now, our number is going to be a decimal number. It's going to start with a decimal. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take the um, uh, first digit after the decimal in the decimal number, and if it's not a five, then our decimal number is going to have a five in that spot. Now, if it is a five, 
we're going to put a six. So now that decimal number is different from the first decimal number in the first digit. It's different from the second decimal number, decimal number in the second digit. It's different from the third decimal number in the third digit, et cetera, et cetera, so forth and so on. In other words, it's different from every number in our list. But our assumption was that all the numbers would be matched with a counting number. Mm -hmm. But we now have one that is demonstrably not matched with any counting number because it's different from every number in the list. So therefore, our assumption that there was a one-to-one -one and onto correspondence between the counting numbers and the decimal real numbers between zero and one is in error and the opposite must be true. And therefore, there isn't a one-to-one -one and onto correspondence. So that level of infinity is different. Does that make sense to you, David? Okay. Um, well, I mean, yes. And now, let me just say one more thing, <clears throat> and mm. then you can you can head off on me. Uh, the idea is very different in execution when you get to uh, higher uh, dimensions, but the concept of one-to-one -one and on-to correspondences between the two is the same, and and that's what you look for. Can we set this correspondence up or not? If we can't, hmm. it's a different level of infinity. So, the, um, you're saying that there is an uncountably infinite number of, uh, or uncountably definite, infinite set between zero and one uh, that is just any irrational number. Is that right? All the irrational numbers between zero and one are all the real numbers. All the real between numbers. Zero and one. Okay. So now what, the truth is, it, it does have to be the irrational numbers because the rational numbers between zero and one are countably infinite. Right. So you have to have the irrational numbers in there for that to hmm. actually happen. And, but and that's true I was because, saying real. Okay. So real. Uh, well, I'm saying the irrational because that's the those are the ones that actually put us over the edge. Um, the, well, I, I don't think that we were disagreeing. I think we're, um, no, maybe no, I'm not no. really saying it well, but here's, I, I just wanted to say it right. <laughs> so we have a, a coordinate plane and what we'll do is define a line by that crosses the Y, uh, Y axis at every point, every a real point between zero and one. That would give us an infinite, an uncountably infinite number of number lines, right? So what I'm, what I'm saying is that when you add an additional dimension that didn't exist before, uh, you're going to end up with even, even just adding a little bit of that. It ends, it ends up being infinite. Well, even David, if it's uh, measurable within, go ahead. See, what you're saying there is not true. R cross R uh, has the same level of infinity as R. In other words, when I say R, I'm talking about real numbers. Real numbers cross real numbers. That's basically the XY coordinate plane has the same level in, of infinity as R. Um, I'm not the real numbers. I'm not actually. Okay, let's say let's say instead of the whole 
lines, uh, the whole infinite number line, uh, we just have like the numbers between say zero and five and we create a line segment uh, basically of that length uh, horizontal to the x-axis at, starting at every point on the y-axis between zero and one. We still end up with an infinite number of those line segments, right? Yes. I'm not, I'm not trying to add a level of infinity. I'm just pointing out that what was uh, basically a had no thickness, had no uh, height to it. When you add another dimension and you're looking at it from that perspective, it uh, kind of becomes infinite. But <clears throat> you know what? Let's let's put a pin in that. Let's put a pin in it because it's. I don't know yeah. if what I'm saying matters. Uh, it, it just well, I I would say that's probably true it's away from our focus i'll also point out david that my timer tells me that we've been going for one hour and 15 minutes yeah your timer is a little time well your timer is from when the phone call started but we are done so um let's let's put a pin in it and uh, we will come back to this uh and see if we can make some more progress next week i look forward to it and i would say to everybody that's been listening uh, I, I'm sorry, and I, I hope that we don't get this mathematically technical every week. <laughs> well, we, I think we... David, laid, I've enjoyed this with you. Yeah, we laid a lot of good groundwork today, so uh, I've enjoyed it with you as well, and I'll see you next time. Okay. Now to him who is able to keep you, who is able to keep you from stumbling, His glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time and now and forever.
Oh, man.